Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Hey everyone, it's Vikram from Quantlayer. Thank you so much for listening to our sixth podcast. On this episode, Faison and I discuss why we are moving our alerting platform off of Google Cloud and into DigitalOcean. We discuss Polychain Capital's $1 billion SEC filing and how you need $1 million to invest in them. We look at Andreessen Horowitz's $300 million fund launch and how they are thinking about good crypto projects. We go over the shady techniques that hedge funds engage in in order to juice their returns and what a high watermark is. We cover some alerts that our platform picked up and get into a really interesting discussion around second layer solutions for Bitcoin and Ethereum. This episode has it all. A crypto team moving away from the world's greatest centralizer, crypto investor market news, and where we think second layer solutions are headed. You will enjoy this one. Hey everyone, you got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. I'm also joined by Faison, known as the Wizard. Hey. Hey Faison, how's it going? Pretty good. Are you in uh, Brooklyn right now? I am in Brooklyn. Nice, nice. Yeah, I'm out in uh, in New Mexico in Santa Fe. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's pretty beautiful out there. Yeah, it's great. I actually grew up in Albuquerque and I moved uh, sometime in high school. So it's been over 20 years since I've been back. So it's pretty interesting. It's pretty packed, like Santa Fe. I don't remember it bustling so much, and it's pretty, uh, it's pretty busy. Yeah, nice. My one memory, I spent a good amount of time in Albuquerque, was just that in the right time of year, you can go mountain biking and skiing in the same day because there's so much elevation difference. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Where were you, up in uh, Taos? Or uh, well, so I was actually in Albuquerque, and then, yeah, I went up to Taos, also went to like the Sandia Ridge or Sandia Peak, whatever that is. It's about 10,000, 11,000 feet. So you can actually go mountain biking up there and like it's at over 10,000 feet. So you basically just can't breathe, but it's fun. (laughs) Cool. So yeah, this has been a pretty busy week, both on our product side and the crypto market side. One big thing that we've had to do is actually begin migrating our staging and production app over to a different service provider. So we've been on Google Cloud for a while. And just for a number of reasons, we decided to move over to DigitalOcean. Yeah, I can speak a little bit about that. So up till now, just for the purpose of our prototype, we had been using a relatively simple architecture for the alerting platform. But as we get ready to launch, we want to make it a little more uh, reliable in terms of uptime and also easier to work on parts of it without risking taking the rest of it down. So complicating the architecture a little bit, breaking it out into a handful of services. And so part of that process was just configuring a lot more resources on uh, Google Cloud Platform. And normally, I use Terraform for this. I've been very happy with Terraform. I've used it for AWS. I've used it for Google Cloud. And it works really well. But the two issues that... And I also use DigitalOcean for some some of our stuff. But the one thing that I've always found that's a little bit frustrating with both AWS and uh, Google Cloud, and probably some of these other larger providers, is the uh, you know identity and access management and permissioning uh, configuration is so very complicated to get started that either you're doing something overly permissive or you end up spending a lot of time just configuring all that stuff 
correctly because it, it really is designed for larger organizations that might have different levels of permissions they want to assign people. Whereas for a smaller team like ours, it really eats away at our leverage to be able to deploy quickly. So I was getting a little bit frustrated with just having to handle all of that every time I need to provision new service, but that's not that big of a deal. Terraform makes it a lot easier. The really nasty surprise that we got was, uh, so we signed up for Google Cloud Platform relatively recently. It comes with a $300 credit, which is awesome. But when I signed up, we put the credit card down, put the billing information in. It was my assumption that we'll burn through the credits and then we'll just start getting uh, billed. And I set alerts for, you know, if it, the bill exceeds this much, let me know. But I assumed we would be getting charged. What instead happened was that once the credits ran out, without warning, all of our services got suspended. And so we couldn't access our bucket. We couldn't access our instances. We couldn't access our database. The way I use Terraform uh, to have so that our configuration file is not distributed, but rather a single source of truth is it's based out of that bucket. So I couldn't actually change any configuration without having to like leave Terraform and mess up my Terraform config. So it was pretty uh, unpleasant. And I went through the, their you know console and re-enabled stuff. It's not very obvious how that all works. And uh, it was a pretty unpleasant experience combined with the fact that you know, it's all anecdotal evidence, but a lot of the places that I frequent, people do have a bad experience with when Google shuts them down. They don't have a good explanation, and it's very hard to like have immediate recourse. And with how critical these services are, that's kind of a that's basically you know a deal breaker. Yeah. So with some of the configuration uh, frustration we'd had, and just how much nicer of an experience I've had with DigitalOcean, we decided to move everything over to DigitalOcean for really three reasons. One, their like community team and documentation is by far, like by far the best I've seen, not just among cloud providers, but it's just like some of the best documentation I've seen, period. They're very responsive. And I know we've discussed this before, but like my big criteria is always leverage. Like we want to pick tools that don't stop us from doing anything that is possible, but also let a small group like two of us or three of us do as much as we possibly can. Yep. And the really good documentation combined with the really how nice the UI is makes like DigitalOcean a good choice, especially now that they provide load balancers. They have like their own storage. They they have more services. So you're not like just spinning up instances and having to configure everything manually. So yeah, that's my sort of yeah. two cents on that. No, the move made a ton of sense. And I think what sealed the deal for me as well was that just the lack of communication on the point on the part of Google Cloud uh, we literally didn't know. I mean, I just went to the site in yeah. the morning when I got up and I couldn't get to it. Then we chatted about it and then realized the whole thing was down. And I, I scoured my emails to look for an alert email and there was none. Yeah. So, and, you know, obviously alerts are important. Right. And I tweeted at them. I said, hey, th- you know, w- what happened? And they were like, uh, sorry for the inconvenience. Can you give us some more information? I mean, we've literally given you all the information we have. Yeah. But yeah, it makes sense. DigitalOcean uh, on the documentation side is really nice. And, you know, like you said, we got a small team. So all this stuff is super, super important. So moving on to a little bit of crypto investor market news, not necessarily on the coin side, but the actual investor side, a uh, ton of stuff that we learned about this past week. So the first little piece of news is that Polychain Capital, which is run by Olaf Carlson Wee, one of Coinbase's original founders, Looks like as of February of this year, it had a little more 
than a billion under management. That's gigantic oh, wow. in crypto terms. And is that is is that mostly crypto or a lot of fiat or do you know what how, how that? I'm not sure what the breakdown is because it doesn't get into the the filing that all this stuff is sourced in doesn't say. Right. It's probably a mix of fiat and crypto. I would be really surprised if they were 100% invested. So it's probably a mix. But that number is is gigantic because most of the crypto funds that you hear about are pretty small. You know, someone made a ton of money in Bitcoin and Ethereum and they pulled together some assets and maybe they have 10, 15 million under management. So anytime I heard, uh, I had always just assumed most crypto funds were in that kind of range. So hearing a billion dollar number is just obscene. So the actual, the exact number is as of February, 2018 is a billion, 44 million, 64,537. So that's their total assets under management. Uh, if you look at their SEC filings, they have a venture fund, a master fund, uh, a couple other funds, different versions of those funds. So my guess is they all have different strategies, like the venture fund may be more you know, long-term hold. Maybe there's like a trading fund that's more short-term type of hold. Right. But that billion-dollar number is the amount of all those funds together. So you know, it's, it's really interesting to – all this information comes from the – SEC filing that they have. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes, but you know, everyone should take a look at this because it gives you a ton of inf- interesting information about the fund. Things like how they charge their investors, for example, who their investors are, and specific details on what the requirements to invest in their fund are. So with respect to Polychain, so they charge a man, like most hedge funds, they charge a management fee and a performance-based fee. The management fee is a small percentage of total assets under management, and the performance-based fee is a cut of the total profits uh, made over the course of the year. Typically, this is in place to keep the fund incentivized in order to perform well. So with traditional funds, you'll hear things like 2 and 20, which means the fund has 2% management fee for assets under management and then 20% of the profits. That's like the average type of hedge fund with really successful funds like Jim Simon's Renaissance Capital. Now, this is probably one of the most technical funds out there. They basically hire all the top PhDs who never leave. It's it's unheard of in finance where there's always a revolving door. And it's always swinging. And you know they hire the top PhDs, top mathematicians. You hear stories about how none of these guys want to ever leave because they're doing amazing research and they're actually applying their research. And it's pretty, it's a pretty I would say it's the top of the funds out there. They charge five and 44. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they're an $84 billion fund. So if they're charging 5% on assets under management and 44% of the returns, they can pull in a, a phenomenal income based on that. So I imagine some funds like Polychain could get away with these high fees, you know, because they have the name of Olaf Carlson Wee, started Coinbase. All the, the Coinbase people like to call themselves like the PayPal, like the Coinbase mafia, like, how there's the PayPal mafia. Right. Anyway, so so fun like Polychain could probably get away with it because there was so much interest in digital assets last year. And I think it's going to be harder for new funds launching to have those kind of fees now that there's a massive slump in the price of crypto assets since the beginning of the year. A couple other interesting things to note from that filing, 61 million, 61 and a half million were from foreign clients. That's just interesting. So obviously most of their clients are American, but... They have a pretty sizable chunk that are from abroad. Also, the filing has specific details on what it takes to be an investor in Polychain's private fund. 
So the minimum investment required is a million dollars. Okay. So not just being accredited, but being accredited and having a million dollars in change to be able to invest with them. To put into just one fund. Yeah, to put into just one fund. And the approximate number of investors they have is 267. So on average, just under 4 million or so per investor. Right, right. So I'm going to guess that Olaf's been in crypto for a while. So probably a good chunk of the fund is his plus spread out over all these investors. And then plus on top of that, the returns from last year. So, you know, billion dollars, I guess, makes makes sense, even though the number is totally, totally insane. So that that was interesting. Another interesting piece of in, investor news is uh, Andreessen Horowitz. So they're a big VC firm based in Silicon Valley. So they just right. launched a $300 million investment fund that's going to invest. And they've been traditionally a tech fund, not a crypto fund. Right, right. Traditionally tech, but now they're going to launch a $300 million investment fund that's going to be focused just on crypto assets and crypto asset related investments. So first of all, this is super interesting. Anderson Horowitz has built a giant name of itself by being really different compared to other traditional and older VC firms. So they hire a lot of nine financial people for investment roles. And this is really different in venture finance. Typically, you had an ex-I banker. You know, they did banking for two, three years. They went to go get their MBA from Wharton or Harvard or Stanford. And then they go work for, for some VC fund. So I think these guys realized that if you have the exact same kind of people all doing the same kind of investments, they're all going to get the same kind of returns, but they're also competing for the same type of investments. Yeah. And just from like a, a dev perspective, when you just being on Hacker News or some of the other places that devs hang out, they tend to have some of the best like blogs that speak to what's going on in the tech market, but like as it relates to developers. So I, I think they, they speak better to founders than a lot of these other VC funds do, yep. maybe as a result of that. Yep. So they provide a lot of support for their portfolio companies. They, you know, they try to help them hire technical talent and business talent. They've done a big service to themselves by getting involved in marketing techniques to help build their brand in, not, in non-traditional ways. So uh, the New York Times actually covered all this in a pretty interesting piece we'll leave in the show notes from uh, a couple years ago. But it was a pretty interesting move because it's not your typical VC fund and then not typical investors. So they're launching a crypto fund. And another interesting part of this whole thing is that they brought on Catherine Hahn, board member of Coinbase and, and a formal federal prosecutor who's worked alongside the FBI and SEC. So I think this move is pretty significant. And I just want to read her bio here because of how significant this is. So this bio is from her faculty page at Stanford Business School where she teaches. Catherine spent over a decade as a federal prosecutor with the U.S. Department of Justice, where she focused on fraud, cybercrime, and corporate compliance failures alongside agencies such as the SEC, FBI, and Treasury. She was the DOJ's first ever coordinator for digital assets and led investigations into the Mt. Gox hack and corrupt agents on the Silk Road Task Force. Before that, she led prosecutions and jury trials involving organized crime, public corruption, RICO murders, gangs, and money laundering. She also held senior positions at Justice Department headquarters in both the National Security Division and as counselor to the Attorney General, where her portfolio included antitrust, tax, national security, and civil matters. So she obviously has a ton of relevant experience, and I think this is a pretty big hire, and it's pretty heartening to see someone with that kind of experience at a large crypto fund, especially with a name like Anderson Horowitz 
So we'll need more actors like this in the space, you know, than the the Moon Boys it's full of right now. You're gonna have to clarify what a Moon Boy is. <laughs> a Moon Boy. I was hoping people would just understand that immediately. It's basically all the people in the space who were just asking when Lambo, when Moon. Like that's their, uh, you know, you buy a random thing you saw on Twitter, and then you go onto the Telegram and you ask when Moon, when when Lambo. So that's a Moon Got Boy. It. Yeah, not a good uh, investment method or scheme. Yeah. It's actually gotten kind of ridiculous on, on Telegram because I follow, you know, we follow a lot of these chats for the alert platform. And uh, I know, on, uh, I think one of the coins, I want to say VeChain, but if I'm wrong, you know, that doesn't matter. They've actually created a separate room that's like serious crypto discussion or something. So their, <laughs> their main channel was just full of like when moon and gifts. So they had to create a separate channel and literally title it like, you know, serious crypto discussion or something and, and there you can't like talk nonsense or post gifs and stuff that's just so i just i just amazing. thought that's funny you know you have these like financial products worth hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars and like this is what's having to happen like can you imagine the same thing for like i don't know gm or something right right like the bond market yeah <laughs> so yeah the chris dixon he's another general partner at anderson Horowitz, uh, he outlined his thoughts on why they're they're opening the fund in an open letter. So we'll put all that sh- uh, all the stuff in the show notes. But just want to highlight a few parts that were really interesting. So first off, they and I re- highly recommend everyone read this because it really outlines in a very simple format the bullish thesis for crypto and subsectors within crypto and where these people are seeing things go. So this is their thesis up front. This is from their letter. Blockchain computers were first proposed in 2008 by Satoshi Nakamoto in the Bitcoin white paper. Those original ideas have since been dramatically expanded by developers and researchers around the world. Blockchain computers are new types of computers where the unique capability is trust between users, developers, and the platform itself. This trust emerges from the mathematical and game theoretic properties of the system without depending on the trustworthiness of individual market network participants. In exchange for these new capabilities, blockchain computers trade off their other capabilities, such as transaction scalability. This can lead people to dismiss them in the same way that people dismissed early smartphones because they traded off computing power and screen size for portability and new sensors. So a couple of thoughts about this. This is me again. This, I think, is one of the fundamental claims we're making as crypto market participants, that blockchain computers allow for trustless systems. You know, there's some gives and takes, like because of how slow and bulky these computing systems are, you can't expect the kind of through, throughput you would, would see with the centralized system. Sure. So they go into more from the letter here. For example, developers are working on upgrading the core infrastructure of the internet, including storage, networking, identity, and distributed computation. Stable coins can enable more mainstream user experiences for digital payments and financial services. Crypto goods can unlock new experiences and business models for games and other forms of media. Entrepreneurs are developing crypto-powered financial services like the tokenization of traditional assets and payment services for the unbanked. We expect many other applications to emerge in the coming years. So this is me again. What they're arguing about here is that the notion of trust is fundamental to these new systems. So there will be new applications on top of this new software primitive of trust that they're referring to. So what do you think, Faison? What you know? What out of these sort of things? What seem the most interesting? So I think a, a lot of it are things that have been proposed but not implemented. Just the idea of being able to have 
trust between parties. You know, they talk about like financial transactions for the unbanked, but in a lot of these, like a lot of that same crowd, there's just a tremendous amount of corruption and like predatory behavior. So, you know, even in America, if you look at the sort of financial products people have access to, the way they get ripped off, and especially in countries with higher amounts of corruption, just being able to have these trustless systems execute a lot of the sorts of transactions and services that people uh, avail themselves of, I think can cut down on a lot of corruption and predatory behavior. That's what's most interesting to me, like on the in the long term, in terms of functionality outside of just the financial markets. Yep. Uh, and then I think within the financial markets, a lot of that has already been discussed around what it can do for as a currency, as a security, as a utility token, et cetera. Yeah, for me, besides the financial services side, because that is the most obvious play here. So what seems interesting in their list, so they list uh, storage, networking, identity, and distributed computation. Identity and distributed computation seem pretty interesting to me. I think what the on the identity side people want to solve for is you know not having to enter your username and password every time you use a different kind of application right? and have some blockchain-based solution for that. And that would cut down on, you know, a lot of the third-party service type of hacks that we see where information is stolen. So kudos to them. And I hope that that whole sector is able to find a solid solution to that. And distributed computation, this one's interesting to me because I participated in the distributed SETI platform yeah, where like you leave your computer on and it uses your compute cycles to help. Yeah. Was it Search for Aliens? Is that is that the SETI one? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. So I did a similar one, but for protein folding. Okay. Yeah. There's actual crypto coin called, I think the ticker is Fold, F-O-L-D. Uh, okay. That they're trying, it's based out of California. I don't know much about it, but I think they're trying to solve for that as well. And the thing that that I wanted to understand better was, you know, I'm interested in the research that SETI was doing. So that's what prompted me to want to give my computing power. And it didn't cost me anything. It was in my dorm room, right? I'm not using that much electricity. I don't have to pay for it. Right. School's already paying for it. But I always thought the only way to get this, have everyone participate in this, because I think their goal was like, let's get everyone who has a computer to give just a little bit of computing power to this, uh, this non-time critical problem. And, you know, if people got paid for that, that made a ton of sense to me. And I think some of these, uh, there's iExec, tickers RLC, they're trying to do this with Gollum Network, GNT. They're trying to do this except for rendering graphics, I think. So there's a handful of other players who are trying to do this. But those to me seem like very obvious next plays within the space. Yeah, that makes sense. And then back to the... Anderson Horowitz side. So they finally in their letter, they provide insight into how they're thinking about uh, good investments. So basically they say they're patient. They've been investing in crypto for, for a while and they're willing to hold investments for more than 10 years. So they're trying to take a more long-term outlook, I guess, than all the moon boys. They also will have the assets to invest when the times are tough. You know, if if this is all, this is always really important when an investor says this and everyone says it, it's a question of whether or not they're going to actually do it. Who has the courage to put cash to work when the market's getting destroyed? I mean, that's a, that's one of, that's how people make real money and there's only a handful of funds that will do it. So they're saying that they'll, they'll, if there's another crypto winter that comes around, they're willing to invest in that. Like their parent fund, they'll also provide operational support to their investments. That's pretty cool. And finally, their focus is on non-speculative stuff. 
and they're agnostic to stage or geography or asset type. So it was pretty cool to see a letter like this. Yeah, that's yeah, that is nice. And I mean, if you just look back to like, say, 1997, 1998, that's around when Google started, Amazon started, Steve Jobs came back to Apple and like launched the iPod, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of those things went through the first tech collapse where I assume a lot of capital dried up, but those that you know stuck around probably did pretty well in those companies. Yeah. The other piece of financial investor market news in crypto that was pretty interesting. So Spencer Bogart, he is a fund manager. He was talking about Bitcoin and crypto prices being depressed due to forced selling by hedge funds. I think he was saying it on, he was talking about this on CNBC. So this is a really interesting topic. And I've heard similar arguments before about why a particular stock is selling off at the end of a month or quarter. And one thing that everyone should know is that all fund managers are always trying to game the system at the end of months, <laughs> quarters, and years so they can juice their returns. And I'll explain what that means, but they're always trying to do it. So back in the 90s, funds would mark their private tech investments with, I mean, they didn't do it as whatever they pleased, but they tried to make it look reasonable and give themselves a boost in return to make their overall return look higher. So if you're a fund and you had an investment in a private tech company, Alongside your public stocks, you could mark up the value of your private investment to help mitigate some of the losses of your stocks. So I think this got fixed because the SEC realized this was going on and then they basically caused a stop to this. But it didn't stop funds from trying to buy up momentum towards the end of a reporting period. So I'll just give some examples with some math. So say uh, say you're a fund. 10% of your portfolio is in an illiquid public stock. So something that really doesn't trade that much. Because it doesn't trade that much, any buying or selling has it moved pretty quickly. And like something that trades, say, $100,000 a day, uh, compared to the billions of Facebook, Netflix, et cetera, to give a sense of magnitude. So some stock trades $100,000 a day. One day you buy $200,000 of it. Now you've doubled the volume. And the only way to only way the stock is going to react is going up because the bid ask spreads are just going to keep going up because you're buying all the asks. So you can buy more of that stock on the last day of the trading year and sending and what that'll do is send that, that stock higher, like we just described. So say right. it's up twenty percent, right? Now you've just added yeah. it's ten percent of your portfolio and it's up twenty yeah. percent. You just added two percent yeah. to your returns. Nice. So you just might bite the bullet next year. But who cares about next year? There's there's right. 10,000 stocks, 20,000 20 stocks. Yeah, you got your two and 20 that year. And you just made another 2% that you'll take 20% of. This is why you see crazy bull runs towards the end of a year. People are just marking their books up. So if they see a stock that's starting to move, they want to get on board too. And uh, you see this all the time. So the flip side of all this, which what Bogart is talking about here, is that if a fund is performing poorly its investors will want to take money out of the fund. So if they decide to do that, the fund is going to be forced to sell some portion of its holdings in order to pay back investors. So say say you have a $100 million fund and you're fully invested. And then one of your investors says, hey, I had invested this much in you and I want it back. So say, say it was $5 million, just for discussion. They want their $5 million back and you're 100% invested. That means you have to sell at least $5 million in order to pay them back. So often you'll see funds say, 
they'll have a lockup, meaning your investors can't get their money back for like six months, a year. I think I've heard like three years before too, which is a really long time. Uh, maybe venture funds, it's a lot longer. So some kind of trading oriented funds, they could give uh, lockups of 30 days, which means you have to give 30 days notice before you can get your funds back. So the fund manager has 30 days to come up with $5 million. And the only way to do it is to is sell. So this can really exacerbate the prices of stocks that were underperforming before. So if, you, if you're one of these managers and you have to sell something, you probably want to sell your worst performing assets rather than your best. So say there's some asset that's down 10%, market's up 5%, it's underperformed. You want to get rid of that. You don't want to sell the one that's up a lot because typically people like to let their winners run and they want to cut their losers. So a lot of fund managers start selling the, uh, the one that's not doing so well. So if it's down, it's going to be down more. And in the case of crypto, so the market's gotten destroyed this year. So anyone who invested in one of these hedge funds and these crypto hedge funds late last year, early this year is probably upset and they want to to pull their capital. So, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, It can be a little the the argument can be a little backward looking in the same way you hear stuff like, oh, tax people are selling because of tax season. They need to pay their taxes and stuff like that. But it happens. Uh, It's just hard to say, like, that's why this is happening now. But if, you know, a fund manager is saying it, it's very likely he talks to other funds and it's happened to some of them. Right. So, you know, I, I'm... It w- it's at least a partial cause of some of the yeah. price movement. Yeah. yeah. So another reason why all this is relevant is on the topic of high watermarks. And how high watermark broadly is the idea that if you lost money in a prior year, so say you lost money in 2017 for your investors, you have to make that yeah. back before you can get paid on your profits. So you can't just like be down for 10% and then be up 10% the next year and take 20% of the 10% in the next year. So right. here are some examples, right? So say you're a $100 million fund and you're down 20% for the year. That means you are, your fund is now worth $80 million. Uh, right. You need to make back $20 million to be back to where you were before in order to take any percentage of the profits after that. So you need to actually make 25% in the following year before you can take your performance fee. So now imagine if you're even down more, like t- just consider a crypto fund. Like at the beginning of the year, you were hundred million crypto portfolio is down 50%. That means your fund is now worth 50 million. Now you have to make back 50 million. It's a hundred percent return before you can make money on future profits. That's yeah, that's pretty, it's, I mean, it's there brutal. must be some funds that are in horrible shape that if they spun up in Q3, Q4 last year, when stuff was at like 12, 13, 14,000. Yeah. What happens in the hedge fund world, a lot of funds will just, I mean, they're down 50%. They're like, okay, we'll just wrap this up and they'll just start a new fund. Hmm. It works better for people who have historically been really good and they just had one bad year. I think people will give them a break. But with these crypto funds, who knows? Like if you had a handful of investors who were excited to give you money and then you blew all of it, you you kind of tarnished your name. So in an already uh, weird strange space. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was the uh, pretty interesting market news from, from this past week. Nice. And then uh, I've been, uh, you know, every now and then just skimming through all of the alerts that come through looking for stuff that I find particularly interesting. One of the items that I had, I, I've already mentioned was some of these uh, channels just having, you know, official serious discussion <laughs> sub, <laughs> sub channels. 
you know, I think it's something we need to address, but I'm seeing a ton of banning activity too. So I think there's just a lot of either people trolling in there or what you had experienced where if you ask legitimate questions that people don't like, you also get banned. So we're seeing a ton of banning going on. So that's probably something worth, you know, worth investigating, especially if you're invested in a particular coin and the admins are just silencing any sort of reasonable line of questioning or dissent. That's so Um, interesting because, you know, we track all the admin conversation, right? And if we track the number of times, I I mean, we have all the data. We could actually look up by coin how many times the word ban comes up per day. Yeah. And that would be just interesting to see if if there's some correlation there between that and the quality of the team. Yeah. And I think you could pretty quickly, if you just look up where the bans are and pull in some of the context, like if, if the admins are saying something ridiculous and they get called out and then they ban someone, it becomes very clear how things are being run yep. um, versus there's a lot of also just legitimate trolls yep. and fun yep. going on. I, so it's an interesting yeah, I mean, I've been, set of dynamics. I Not only have I been banned, I've also been muted. So like one time I was... This, uh, I, I was asking, none. I mean, it's not like I'm trolling these people. I'm just asking right. normal questions. But I've asked about something, and I got a message from the admin that said, you're going to be muted for three days. What? Yeah, like they're punishing you? We're not going to ban you. Like go stand in the corner. Right, basically. We're, gonna, uh, we're <laughs> not going to ban you, but you're going to be muted for three days. That's Yeah. So there needs to be some standards brought to this stuff because yeah. that's pretty crazy. Yeah. It's cool how much we can see, though, in these alerts. Uh, especially around the uh, yeah. chat stuff. Yeah, another one that I caught, again, I was just skimming through a lot of these uh, VeChain ones because there's just a lot going on with the, with the banning and then the, the separate channel. Again, the, like Telegram, for whatever reason, has become like the platform where a lot of information appears first. So VeChain is having a token swap and the, you know they published, hey, these exchanges are going to be supporting it. Um, so we caught that in our, in our chatter. So that's pretty cool. And then... Crypto has been banned in India, like outright. And then there was a Supreme Court hearing on it, and it was upheld by the Supreme Court. So I don't know how that's going to play out, but you have a pretty large market now where crypto is just just banned. So a lot of the startups that were there and you know companies that were based out of there, we'll, we'll see what happens to them. Yeah, we really should get someone on the podcast from India who has uh, experience in crypto. I met a couple people when I was at that Boston event uh, a couple months back. Right. And I, I should get in touch with them because I think we uh, this is a pretty interesting topic that I think would be pretty good to talk about. Yeah. Uh, another one I think that's relevant to everyone that uses exchanges. So I think there's been over $700 million of exchange hacks uh, in the last, uh, I want to say, year. I uh, can confirm that. But that's a pretty crazy number for, yeah, first half of 2018. So just year to date, we've had 761 million worth of cryptocurrency stolen from exchanges. So that, that's, that's just a, something to be wary of. That's such an absurd number. Yeah. So I, yeah, I recently, I had, I had been one of the people that was lazy and would leave stuff on exchanges that I had no intention of trading, but you know, I moved it over to a ledger because this just keeps happening. Yeah. How do you, and how do you like the ledger? It's pretty good. It's a bit of a set it and the instructions are really good. They have like these Google Chrome web apps that you can use to install different wallets and manage your stuff. And then, you know, once you're done with it, you just put it away and forget about it. But now it's not online or connected to anything. So that's nice. Yeah, I, I liked it as well. I got I got one a while back. And 
when I was setting it up, I think I had checked their Twitter and they said there there was like a new firmware upgrade. So the only issue I had was that I wouldn't have found out about that unless I went to their Twitter. And again, like we should all be doing that stuff anyway. Yeah. So I think on the last podcast, we were talking about how like crypto teams can communicate with their customers better. Yeah. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that, you know, you don't want your ledger to be out of date. So is worth always like checking their site and their Twitter and stuff to see if they have any uh, new upgrades, especially on like the security side. Yeah. Oh, and uh, one other uh, item that uh, I wanted to discuss. So another one of our alerts is we just look for any addresses that are using a large amount of the uh, ETH network. And so I think you noticed this, but over the last couple of days, 40% of ETH network has been taken up by three contracts. So, you know, as we know, like scaling is one of the big issues that's constantly discussed, not just with Ethereum, but with a lot of these larger, like the, the bigger players in the crypto space. So the problem that you have with Ethereum specifically is, is you know, with Bitcoin, it's you have transactions. With Ethereum, you have the these uh, smart contracts. So there's the additional complexity of, A, how many can, transactions can you put on a block? But B, for each of those, you know, contracts that have to execute, how much computational resources does it need to have? So the base issue is for a blockchain is that every transaction needs to be verified by every node. So as the number of nodes increases, but particularly as the number of transaction increases, the amount of work that's having to be done goes way up. And then if you add to the fact that certain transactions can use a lot more gas or you know need, need a lot more computational power, that doesn't help the situation either. So there's been a lot of uh, you know chatter in the Ethereum space about like how this can be handled. Uh, Vitalik especially has proposed a couple of different things. So the the you know there's layer one and layer two solutions that are being discussed. Layer one is something that would be within the Ethereum protocol itself that would require a hard fork, and then layer two are essentially on-chain uh, you know implementations. So something that can be rolled into a smart contract. So the main layer one solution that's been proposed is uh, sharding. So similar to in a relational database where, you know, a single table might get so big that it's not practical to use that table anymore because you have uh, too many rows. What you do is you split that table into two separate physical database shards and say, let's just say it's a user table. So, the you know, everyone with last name A through, what's the middle of the alphabet? I'm going to say M. A through M would be on one shard, and then uh, N through Z would be on another shard. So the idea, you know, generally speaking, is to split transactions up across different shards. So one chunk of you know one shard would handle, let's say, all the even numbered transactions, and then the other one would handle all the odds. Um, so the problem with that is, of course, it a requires a hard fork of the Ethereum network. Number two. Um, it sounds like it's a pretty linear solution to the scaling. Like if you have two shards, then you've doubled your capacity. And if you have too many shards, then you're losing the guarantee of, you know, having the whole network. Like if you have a hundred nodes and 10 shards, then each shard really only has 10 nodes verifying its uh, transactions. The layer two stuff is where things get uh, interesting. So that's essentially smart contracts that will settle off the chain the trade-off you're making here uh, is you're getting a lot more speed. You're 
essentially able to process a lot more transactions that don't have to be verified by the like the main net. The trade-off is a little bit of uh, the guarantees or the like trust that someone won't uh, rip you off. So there's three that are particularly interesting. One is state channels. So a state channel is really very similar to Lightning Network. Two parties or a fixed number of parties, ideally, open up a channel. There's a contract in place with like a, a judge. It's multi-sig. And you can essentially have as many transactions as you want within this channel. And when the channel closes, it'll ultimately settle up and be one transaction. So let's say we were playing a game, some sort of like CryptoKitties board game where we are constantly making a move. Like every time I make a move, you make yep. a move. It's just say a game of chess. So we wouldn't want every single move to be a transaction on the Ethereum mainnet, as, you know, especially as transaction fees rise. What we could do is open a single channel for the game. Part of the contract would be having that, that judge that enforces that each move, if it moves the transaction or the ultimate event of one of us winning, causes the right settlement to happen. And the way to do that is by having that multi-sig wallet. Um, I'll post some stuff in the uh, the show notes that goes into it in more detail with diagrams. But it's essentially the same idea as the Lightning Network, where you open a channel. Um, within that channel, you can have all of these transactions or state changes, and then you settle up, and it's one transaction on the mainnet. The second is uh, a paper that uh, Vitalik wrote. So this is called uh, Plasma. And so the idea is that I can create a side chain off of a given block and that smaller side chain then does need to be verified by all of the nodes in the system. There can be some amount of people verifying that side chain, but every now and then the uh, validity of that side chain is written back into the root node of that side chain, which is actually on the mainnet. So you have this like one ledger that's on the, the mainnet that's verifying that side chain. And with this, you can actually have chains of chains. It's nestable. Huh. So the trade-off here is, again, you give off give up a little bit of security. There are attacks that can happen because these child chains don't have the same level of uh, security. But depending on what you're trying to do, it's a pretty effective way of, again, being able to have a lot of transactions, have each of those transactions verified versus a channel, and then have you know every now and then the root of that chain verified. As a transaction. And then the third one uh, solves the problem that we had discussed of computationally expensive transactions. So the two previous ones were just really how can we do a much higher volume of transactions without having to get them all verified. So this one is called uh, Truebit. And uh, I'll post some stuff in the show notes about this as well. But essentially, you pay solvers to verify your like to do your verification. And then there's challengers that verify the solver's verification. And you basically, you pay gas to a much smaller subset of computers, like not every single node. So you can run much, much more computationally expensive contracts by essentially having it verified by a smaller subset of computers. Yep. So those are the, you know, the big ones for Ethereum that are, that are in play. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because the ones that are, layer two are just a matter of people implementing them. It doesn't require a hard fork. There's a handful of companies that are doing different, you know, their implementations of these. So we'll see how well they work. Cause again, you do get lower levels 
of, uh, or, you know, lower security guarantees. So we'll see how it works out. And there's probably pretty significant architectural, I mean, you were going through it, I guess, but uh, there's pretty significant architectural gives and takes between each possibility. So are different groups trying to implement them? And okay. Yeah. So there's a, you know, yeah. The, so the Plasma one, Vitalik wrote a paper, but yeah, there are, you know, a handful of companies that are working on different solutions to this because it's essentially gives you an infrastructure layer on top of Ethereum that you could then build applications yep. on. Like if I wanted to build a game of chess, I don't want to have to go implement state channels from scratch. But if there's a company that handled the state channels for me, you know, they're like a protocol layer for state channels then I can build an application on top of that. So that's how I see the, you know, some of these playing yep. out. In some ways it kind of reminds me, it's very different, but I am just, you know, humor me for a second. It reminds me of the whole notion of uh, convention over configuration in web development, especially around like not having to rewrite stuff that already is in good convention, like Rails and Elixir and Phoenix and Ember, you know, handle the convention really well. And there's other platforms that people use regularly that don't, and they have to re-implement things that they really don't need to, or I guess they have to because they've chosen that framework to to write these things, but it it shouldn't be the case. Yeah, exactly. Or another analogy would be like, uh, you know, networking. You have all the different layers from just the hardware to TCP IP to then, you know, stuff has been built on top of that, like your, you know, HTTP protocols and stuff like that. So just the different layers give you more leverage to build higher level applications on top of it. And along with the second layer side, uh, so Bitcoin, there's a big discussion about the Lightning Network, which serves as a second layer on top of the Bitcoin network. So very similar to what we were talking about before, Bitcoin has a limitation in terms of number of transactions per second. And what the second layer solution, so you can take two views. You can have one view, you want to do all transactions on chain, then you're limited by what the base level protocol supports. Yeah. And a big, you know, there's the proponents of, well, just increase the block size. Then if you double the block size, you've doubled the uh, capacity. But the problem with that is that that leads to centralization because the bigger you make the blocks, the more like memory and resources the each node needs to actually be able to run a full blockchain. So you're essentially causing like people can't run it on their computers anymore. And you you essentially create uh, centralization towards specialized hardware. So what Lightning Network is trying to do is be able to support way more many transactions by doing all those transactions off-chain. And there's a really interesting application out there right now for the Lightning Network. It's a Satoshi's Place. It's just S-A-T-O-S-H-I-S dot place. Uh, and I'll put that in the show notes. But it's basically a little draw slash painting web app. And in order to put your actual drawing or painting on it, you have to pay to to do so. So you can just, I was messing around with it and I could draw like two letters and it costs about a penny. Forget the actual cost itself, but the idea is that, that in order to uh, participate in the application that you put up some Satoshis for that. So obviously, like, what do you expect when you have an open source uh, drawing platform that anyone can use? that the Bitcoin community is involved in? What do you expect to be drawn? 
penises, of course. So I think uh, that was what happened initially. And then finally, it's been cleaned up a little bit. And now people are just kind of, uh, I'm just opening it up right now. Some guy named Greg has drawn his name. There's the word horse. I don't know. There's a bunch of random stuff. Someone drew a magic, an entire magic card, like from Magic the Gathering. There's a MasterCard logo, nice. a nice big Bitcoin logo. So it's kind of cool to just see this happening. It's like collaborative drawing, I guess. So another use case is micropayments, of course. Like two people can open up a channel with each other, uh, say in the case of like games. And they can, as long as they know they're interacting with each other over the long term, they can uh, just pay, pay Satoshis to one another. One of the biggest drivers for pushing like any technological standards has been like gaming. So I think like being able to put games and stuff on the Lightning Network will might, will probably be a they'll probably be one of the earlier adopters. And so, where does Lightning Network stand right now? So we log a lot of these Lightning Network. We log the Lightning Network progress on a regular basis and then deliver them as alerts to our users. For example, we take snapshots of the Lightning Network network at given time intervals. So we look at things like how much BTC is locked up in the network, uh, the number of nodes and channels in the network. Like right now, there's 27 BTC worth locked up in the Lightning Network. And uh, it's probably around 150,000. A couple months ago, it was around 20 BTC. And so that's a pretty big, you know, 35% in total uh, BTC locked up. It's not bad over a couple months. And as this stuff gets out of beta and more into mainnet, and as companies can figure out how to profit off of it, you know, these, uh, that number will shoot up dramatically. Hey, everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you're an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at QuantLayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at QuantLayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at QuantLayer.com. I will write back. Thanks.